You're listening to It's Real Life Podcast. Real hope. Real love. Real Real life. Hello, hello, hello. We're so glad that you joined It's Real Life Podcast. Uh, So... We're going to have a very engaging conversation uh, today. We have two special guests with us. All of our guests will be special, of course. But these two ladies are are part of our very first podcast, and we're very excited to have them with us. So let's introduce ourselves. I'm Deborah Bell. Uh, If I were to tell you a little bit about myself, I guess I would start by saying I am very impatient. (laughs) Let's start with that. (laughs) Um, But uh, part of the work that I do involves encouraging and empowering men and women uh, as I work as a coach a life coach also as I work at Houston Baptist University with students in career services. So that's a little bit of background about me. Of course, I am a mom and a grandmother. Yeah, those little babies. (laughs) And I got a lot of babies. Uh, And I enjoy helping people understand their purpose and walking into their power. I love to do that. And I, that's the thing that uh, I do well. So I have a, a, a co-host. Come on in here. <laughs> Come on in the room. <laughs> okay, so I am the co-host. I am Chris Davis. You know, the, uh, the other half of the dynamic duo. I'll just keep it really simple because it is really simple. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a black man, father of boys. I'm a son I mean, I think in general, everything that I've ever done in life has to do with, in some kind of way, helping people. So whether uh, it was years as a as an elementary school teacher or years as a nonprofit consultant, years, um, you know, engaging, you know, young people as a coach, um, every level of everything that I've ever done, it all centered around helping people. And helping people in the sense that, you know, trying to help them identify what their purpose is and then helping them to achieve it. So strategizing and developing tactics to help them achieve, um, you know, the goal of being everything that God has created them to be. And so, you know, that's really the heartbeat. Everything that I'm going to say is going to be centered around that very thing. So that's me in a nutshell. Great, great, great. Let's talk a little bit, Chris, about how this whole conversation started with uh, the impact of depression on relationships. A couple of weeks ago, I made a post on Facebook and Dandy Cullens, who's with us today, is one of the people who responded to that post. But I thought it very important to continue the conversation because there were about three people who responded to that post that I was able to help get to psychological help and for there to be people who needed help just from that post. It made me think there are more people out there who are struggling with the area of depression and who may also need help. 
it's not a conversation that we we have in our community much, is it, Chris? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, we've had a number of conversations about, you know, the differences in men and women and some of those those needs, the perspectives, uh, the uniqueness of our experiences in relationships and the way that we present uh, the signs of depression. Right. You know, and and some of the cultural and social dynamics that kind of govern a little bit of that. You know, I was kind of talking with you in a number of our conversations about growing up um, in the suck it up, walk it off culture. Uh, as a man, you know, I, I was a former uh, college football player and that was so that was part of my my life. And I realized that, you know, that football was my, my therapy. <laughs> and I think football for a lot of men is therapy. Um, and you notice that, you know, we gravitate toward those kinds of things because, you know, it's not um, oftentimes safe uh, to express uh, our vulnerability. You know, just who we are, the fact that we may be afraid or that we may be hurting. Um, there's just, aren't, you know, there aren't safe places. And sometimes and oftentimes it's not even safe in our relationships because of the expectation of what a man is supposed to be. So I, I think you're right in the in the fact that men and women kind of come to the, the, the air issue of depression from different perspectives. Uh, I remember in my own experience and part of this is what I shared in the post on Facebook was that I was going through my daily life, working and traveling, raising a a small son, married, and then serving in a large church. And I realized every time somebody asked me how I was doing, my response was, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. And it was funny to me that nobody picked up on that. Or they didn't say anything to me about it. And finally, I got tired of saying I was tired. And I realized something was was wrong. And, and even then, at the realization, I didn't know what was wrong. I want to bring in Dandy Cullens, Dr. Dandy Cullens, into this conversation. Uh, Dr. Cullens is a professor at Texas Southern University. Uh, she is a certified family life educator. Uh, and holds a BS and MS degree in human services and consumer sciences as well well as a a doctoral degree. Dandy uh, is the wife of Reverend Dr. Ross Cullens of the Solid Rock Baptist Church here in Houston. So, So Dandy, welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I just want to ask, in your experience with, um, depression, did you find that that was a trigger or that there was something that brought it on for you? Yeah, uh, actually, when I answered your post, I I really didn't expect to be on the podcast, Uh, but the thing about it is what, and I looked back to see what, how I answered your post, and I said, I used to know that place, not realizing that I'm still in that place. That was the thing until you asked me if I would participate. And um, so what I did was I I did like you. I started looking back and um, trying to figure out when did it start. I wasn't even calling it depression. I'll say it like that. I wasn't calling it depression. And uh, but I did a timeline. And in the timeline, I had a whole lot list of things that had been happening in my life over the you know. And I'm just going on with my life. But actually. I went back and what I did was I highlighted some things that, and, it, and I, the things that I highlighted were the things that I didn't have control over. And that was like the death of my 
my mom, the death of my dad, the death of my mother-in-law, the death of our son, and uh, then recently, the death of my sister. And uh, so, but all the other things, it was like I was just doing, you know, I was just constantly doing and taking care of people and doing this. And um, the church was going through some things, I was going through that. And then we started having, you know, problems in our marriage and just still going through that. And I was still doing it, still teaching, still, you know, whatever. But I noticed that it was the things that I didn't seem to be able to, I couldn't control people dying, but I could control my work. I could control everything else. But those things, the debt, I could not control that. And I think uh, in September when my sister died, that's when it kind of hit the fan. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting how we pile on and pile on and pile on things without realizing what we're really experiencing. So I'd like to bring in Dr. Leatherman into this part of the conversation because I really would like to, to, to know what the definition of depression is and and what are some of the signs to know that you're dealing with depression. So Dr. Leatherman, to introduce you a little bit to our audience, uh, has retired from HPD, not as an officer, uh, but as uh, the director of psychological services. She also has her own uh, clinical practice, and she's the author of two books. And, and before we leave, I hope you would share with us about, about your books, because they're, they're very interesting. So, Dr. Leatherman, what is depression? How is it defined? I think um, both Chris and Dr. Cullens gave a good description indirectly of depression. They both made some comments that are important. For Dr. Cullens said depression is related to losses. I, I don't get depressed when life is good. I get depressed when something goes bad, when something goes wrong. But also Chris made the point that men and women don't manifest depression the same way. And one of the things that we notice is that men often get angry and women get sad. It's, a, it's underneath it all, they both experience the same loss, the mm-hmm. same emptiness, the same sadness. It's just basic fundamental sadness, mm-hmm. but it's prolonged and it interferes with our functioning. Everybody's sad. But depression is prolonged. It needs to be at least two weeks in duration. And it interferes with life. And a lot of times we get used to the depression and so we push through and we don't, it doesn't impair as much as it might because we just push through it. But it really is about my mood, I'm sad, I'm crying, but it's also about energy and and how well am I motivated? Do I function? Do I get the things done? But it's also a function of how's my brain working? Is my brain scrambled? Is my brain kind of out of whack? Because I can't concentrate. I'm forgetting things. Um, I'm not processing. You said the same thing to me three times before I finally registered what you needed or what you wanted because I'm not work- my brain isn't working well. So we mostly think about depression as a mood problem. I'm sad, I'm crying, I'm irritable, I'm angry but it's not just about mood, but the key is it's got to last a period of time and it has to interfere with our functioning because all of us are sad. All of us get irritable and angry and our brains don't work that well, but 
but depression diagnostically has to encompass that those criteria as well. So that's the big picture. But on a continuum, it doesn't look the same way for everybody because some people are mildly depressed and some people are so severely depressed that they can become suicidal. I don't want to live. Life is not worth it. I cannot tolerate this anymore. And then everything on the continuum in between. That, that's really an interesting statement that you made about the continuum, because even for me, people would look at me during that period of time and they would see absolutely nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. They would see me going through the regular routines of, of whatever I was responsible for doing. But when I got home, it was the interaction with my family. I was completely absent for a period of time. There was no engagement with my family because when I came home from work, it could be five or six o'clock. I was getting ready for bed under the cover with the lights out, completely done. And I like what Chris said, you were crying. Men and women don't manifest it the same way. If Chris went home, Chris is arguing and maybe fussing and he's, you know, creating havoc and why are you bothering me? And you just shut down crying silently. And that's one of the, the key distinctions between men and women. We don't manifest it the same way on the outside, but on the inside, there's something gone. There's something that we've lost. And the cause, the triggers, as you mentioned earlier, Sometimes there are legitimate triggers. I mean, Dr. Cullen's had a list of triggers, any one of which was sufficient. But sometimes there are no triggers because sometimes depression is biological and it is not a function of what's happening around us. It's a function of what's happening inside of our brains, yeah. either chemically or structurally. And we call that on a biological basis or uh, a nurturing um, basis to our depression. What I'm interested to know, uh, Dr. Cousins, Mm -hmm. is how did that impact your family? I mentioned that I was just disconnected. Yeah. And 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 nobody thought there was anything wrong. Well until I said something. Until you said something. (laughs) Well, in in my family, because you know, family is a system. And I think sometimes we forget that. We think it's just us. (laughs) When it's affecting us, it is just us. We, you know, we internalize it, but how it affected me and my family, um, because I'm very talkative. And um, and my husband also is a very um, affectionate person. He's a very touchy-feely person. And um, when I'm in that depressive state, I don't talk much and I don't touch, I don't, you know, so there's no talking, there's no touching. And so it affected him. Um, adversely, uh, you know, he would get, he would also get depressed in in a sense. He would get quiet, but he was just telling me that if you love somebody, you after a while, you learn them different moves and things like that. And so, um, but it did affect the relationship um, in giving me my space. It also made me feel like he doesn't care about me, you know, (laughs) although it seems as if you're pushing a person away, but uh, it affected us, uh, we had to work through a lot of things. Uh, it affected my relationship with with the children in, in a way, but uh, it, we got closer, they say, that we talked more. And my husband, too. We did talk after a while, after years and years of understanding what was going 
going on with me. And even recently, me understanding me, what was going on with me, I was able to let some some of my guards down and allow people. I think what it happens though sometimes, Deborah, we put these walls up too uh, because we're afraid. I was afraid of losing control. I was afraid of, of doing something that was very uncharacteristic of me and I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to control it. And so um, in doing that, I was also uh, con- controlling some things in the relationship that probably could have been fixed. I mean, would not have you know, gotten, out, gotten out of whack if I would have allowed that wall of fear that I'm losing myself uh, in this. And um, yeah. That's a really interesting um, comment, the fear of being out of control. Chris, you talked about um, men and how they, you know, find their space with football or sports or what have you. Do you think for men there's that same kind of fear? Well, I think every all, all of us fear based on some level. You know, I think that um, men, um, I think there are a number of different ways that, that we um, in terms of just what I've experienced and what I've seen uh, that we kind of uh, we process it. Sometimes some of us dive into tasks, right? Um, which is the reason why I think a lot of times, you know, when we look at the broad spectrum, we see that there's, and I, I think we talked about this in a previous conversation that, that there's kind of this underlying underneath the cover, underneath the surface, uh, uh, an epidemic of men committing suicide and people who love them and are close to them um, they, they often have the same statement that I didn't see it coming or I, I was unaware. I, I, I didn't, they didn't seem sad, you know? And so it's because they're extremely busy. They're, they're great. You know, they're handling all their business at work and they're doing all the things that they're expected to do at home. And so that they, they don't show any of the signs, but inside, you know, they're dying a slow death. And so, um, I, I wonder, you know, oftentimes it is, um, that they don't feel, that they have safe places mm-hmm. to talk through how they're actually feeling because of the level of expectation yeah. that is always on them. They're always supposed to be providing. They're always supposed to be protecting. They're always supposed to be leading. You don't have time to be afraid. You don't have time to not know what to do when a particular situation presents itself. <laughs> and so when you, when you start looking at that pressure over time, um, you know, guys, the pipes burst, you know, the steam build up, right. If it doesn't have a release. And so sometimes you see guys who play sports, but you know, if you, what if you don't have sports, you know, what are your outlets? And oftentimes the guys don't have healthy outlets. And that goes back to what I said earlier about, and then it can manifest as anger. And all we then see is the anger. Why are you so angry? You're hurting me. I'm mad back at you rather than being able to fill that safe place. If, if I introduced myself, Deborah, I would have said that I'm a talk doctor. And that's how I taught four-year-olds what I do as a psychologist. I'm a talk doctor. And I said, like a foot doctor and an ear doctor. Well, I'm a talk doctor. And my goal as a talk doctor is to give people a safe place to talk about anything that they want to talk about without any fear of judgment whatsoever. So in, in you know to follow up what Chris said, that is what happens. And all too often the very women 
who should be supporting the men in their lives become the either the recipient or the antagonist who attacks them for not being who they are supposed to be by their definition. And therefore they even shut down more because they don't have the permission and the safety to say, I'm not okay. And I don't know why I'm not okay. And that's what's so frustrating because everyone on the panel has said, I didn't know what was going on. And I cannot tell you how many times I've said to someone in my office, it sounds like you're depressed. And they cock their head and look at me like, where did you get that from? And I'm just checking the boxes and they're looking at me like, where, what? And I can still see so many clients dumbfounded that I use the term depression to describe what they are presenting. And so I just really want to underscore what Chris said. It's a double whammy. I'm supposed to perform. And when I don't perform, the people who should support me are the people who demand that I perform. And it's a no win situation for a man and they get angry. And sometimes that anger is turned in. Yeah. You know what? I think that uh, while that may be something that's very common to men, I also think that there may be an element of it with women who are in relationships with um, a male figure who's, overbearing and it's like nothing that you do is good enough and I'll speak for me what that did for me was it backed me into a corner and I didn't do anything I just laid down I did I did I literally did give up because there was no way to win I couldn't see a way out. And then I didn't have the tools. I realized that I didn't have the tools to work through that or even to communicate what that was doing to me. Um, And even when I tried, I didn't feel like I was heard. And and so uh, I remember being on the phone with a friend and man, this was like, so very traumatic to me in that moment because what I ended up telling them was I feel like just taking a gun and blowing my brains out because I could not see a way out and the pain was so real and so overwhelming and I, I remember them saying to me you and this is a person who knew me well I haven't seen you do anything for you everything that you you do is about somebody else And I I think it also takes on that whole element of the whole task-oriented stuff that you're just going through the task, going through the motions. Mm -hmm. So, So, Dr. Leatherman, can we switch just a little bit? What do we do when we see people who are presenting like this? Or if if there's a family member, somebody that we're watching and we see the sadness, what do we do? How do we help? You don't assume that they see what you see. That's the first step. Just because you see it doesn't mean they see it. And then when you, when you, when you call it out, when you bring it to their attention, you don't beat them up with it because they already feel bad enough because they feel it, even if they don't understand it. Yeah. So you don't want to beat them up, but then you don't want to flip to the other side of the coin and then 
take away their responsibility for what they should be doing to take care of themselves. So it's a, it's a slippery slope, so to speak, because you want to recognize that you want to support them. But when we love people so often, we overdo it. And then we start making excuses and explaining it away and, and taking away the responsibility to get to the root of it. And at the end of the day, that's what you have to do. You've got to get in front of a professional who can help you understand what is going on. And, and more often than that, that's the most difficult step is to, I love to say, raise your hand and say, help. And people have to be given permission to raise their hand and say, I need help. Even if you don't know what the help is that you need. Here's something I was thinking about too, um, Dr. Leatherman. Like, what about, what about the people who are really good about, um, you know, I'm fine, I'm good. You know, how you doing? I'm good. Oh man, you know, I'm great, man. I had a great day today, you know, such and such and such. I had a great meal. How are you doing? You know, they kind of, you know, rebounded and reflected <laughs> back, you know, but they're really not okay. And they, they do a really good job of handling all their tasks, you know, so they kind of just settle into that role. How do you, how do you get people like that to come out? See, it's really easier than we think because once we call their bluff and make them stop and pause, they usually just kind of fall apart because they've been found out. And really and truly, if you buy that initial, what do you call it? What do you call it? Resistance pushback, then then they're safe. But if you just call them out so many times, that's exactly what they've been waiting for was somebody to say, I'm not buying that. And then to allow them. And what we try to do too often is we talk too much. Mm-hmm. Once you say, I'm not buying that, what's really going on, and you stop talking, you'll be amazed at how much of the real deal people will give you because they're desperate, but they're just going through the motions. And, it, you know, and it's, and it's funny, even when I say to someone, I think you're depressed and they cock their head and look at me. Now they don't have to pretend. Now they don't have to hold it inside. Now they can just say, and exhale and let it come out. And, and that's, that surprises most people, but that's true because you already have a relationship with them. And from that relationship, if you give them a second opportunity, and maybe it may take three times. No, no, you're, you're, I don't believe it. What's really going on. They will give it up (laughs) and then you can go from there. One, One more quick, I got a quick, I want to dig a little bit deeper. If you don't mind, I'm and good. I want to, I want to give the primer for men and women. Like let's 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 give them let's like get behind the curtain okay. and give some tips <laughs> and some tools on like how to like you know really 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 empower men and women in terms of how to deal with each other, how to work with each other, so that really they can create the space for a a man, create the space for her and be able to recognize what she really needs. A woman create the space for a man to be able to do the same. And it's, and it's really easier than we think it starts with, I'm worried. I love you. See, that's what people need to hear. I'm worried about you. I can't put my finger on it but I'm worried about you. And and coupled with, I love you. I want what's best for you. 
and worry and concern, they go hand in hand. And that's what melts the defenses because you're not beating them up. You're not attacking them and criticizing them. Than embraced and loved in the face of our concern. So that works with men or women because then they feel safe because you're not attacking me. You're not going to beat me up if I say, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Yeah. I feel like I can't go on anymore. Yeah. And if they can say that and feel safe, bam. That was really, really good, Dr. Leatherman, <laughs> because those are such simple and common yeah. phrases yeah. for us to say to people that we care about. Sure. And uh, it, it doesn't matter the relation, the level, the, the kind of relationship right. that I can walk up to a friend and just say, hey, I'm worried about you. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't matter the age, because little parents get worried about their children. And children are always afraid they're going to be in trouble. But if, but I love to say to a, a mom or a dad, do you love your child? Are you worried about them? And the parents say, of course, yes. And then I ask the child, do you believe that? Do you believe your mom or your dad love you and they're worried? And then we go from there. The transition is so easy from that place of I'm safe. Wow. So how would you, um, you know, kind of encourage someone who is already in a scenario where they, they feel unsafe, where the relationship, they're already in a relationship, they're in a marriage, and it has existed in an unsafe space. How would they go about constructing safety, you know, with that kind of uh, history? You got, you got to go to a safe person. You can't make an unsafe person safe. You've got to find someone who's safe and then together you can strategize or you can approach, but you can't make an unsafe person safe. That's, that's, that, that's impossible. So you don't even try to do it, but you find someone who's safe and then you go from there because it defeats the purpose. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by finding someone that's safe? Another friend, another relative. Someone else that you know, who you are comfortable confiding in, who you are comfortable opening up and getting naked. I, I love the scripture in the Bible. They were naked and unashamed. Yeah. That is ultimately. See, that was just for husbands and wives, right? That was, that was. That was. <laughs> <laughs> so dating, dating you got to keep the clothes on while you're dating, right? <laughs> I'm Deborah. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's just like in my office. If you're going to come into my office and you're going to pretend and you're going to hide, I can't help you. And I used to love to tell the police officers, you're going to get a little naked in here. And I'd always say, wait, you know, just figuratively, figuratively speaking. (laughs) But but that's what I mean. You've got to be, it's got to be something you can, someone you can get a little naked with. Because that's the only way you can begin to address what's really going on. Here's a question for friendships. Is that a measure of the level of intimacy that you have or the level of closeness in terms of your comfortable, you being comfortable with getting naked or, you know, are there levels of nakedness, you know, in, in friendships that you should, uh, should have? Of course. But unfortunately, the level of comfort is related to the level of brokenness that a person brings to the relationship. 
And I may want you to feel safe with me, but because of my own brokenness, I'm limited in how much of that I can really afford you in our friendship, in our relationship. So it's not just simply, do I want you to feel safe? Am I capable of allowing you to be safe in, in the face of my own brokenness? Wow, that's powerful. I like the conversation about the concept of nakedness within friendships because, uh, of course, yeah, the levels. But I think that some friendships lend themselves more readily to that, that area of authenticity and vulnerability than, than others. It's, it's like I have friends who I've known for 30 years, but it's taken so a long time to develop that. And then there are other friends we just met and it started with that whole vulnerable, open, uh, being able to just share what's on my heart without the time being there. Of course. But, and it's also a real gender difference. Women to be more vulnerable with, with, with each other much more than men do. Men keep it safe. Men keep it shallow. Men keep it activity-oriented. Men keep it, keep it, keep it. And women tend to be more able, but again, it, it really is a function of brokenness, nor let you get too close to them. And yeah. people have to strive to be healthy, and most people don't. That is good. That, that whole element of brokenness, um, because... But don't hear that as blame. See, I don't want anyone to hear me blaming. No. Because, yeah, okay. No, no, no. I think it's all about identifying that when you've been through hurt, you cover. Yes. Uh, Dandy talked about building walls. Yes. And and that really inhibits. Yes. That level of authenticity, vulnerability, and that that kind of deep level sharing, because you don't allow people to know you for real. Yeah, and that's why my, my, my introduction to my first session always includes, I normally sit in the therapist's chair, but I sat on the sofa in my own therapist's office so people understand just because I sit in the therapy chair doesn't mean I got it all together and I ain't never had nothing I had to deal with. That's baloney. Mm-hmm. Because I have had, I have and still have my own areas of brokenness that I must continue to work on as my life evolves. You mentioned grandparents, your grandchildren. That transition for me was not easy. That was a difficult transition, having adult married children. And, and I struggled. And it, and it wasn't fun all the time. Yeah. I, I think we need a whole session on the whole brokenness subject. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and I think I say that because I understand from my own point of view mm-hmm. how that keeps you from developing close relationships. And I, I have a friend at church who would always say to me, because with people, um, I'm always very caring. I'm always bringing, I remember your stuff. I'm going to ask you about your uncle who was in the hospital and your, all of that. And my friend would say to me, people don't know that you don't even care about them. And the reason she would say that is because it's not that I didn't care exactly. 
I wasn't the per- in my own brokenness. I wouldn't let people in. Right, right. And yeah. so to her, because I didn't let people in, it equated to I really didn't care. Yeah. You're just See, going through the motion. And here's the real irony that a broken person cannot tolerate a small stressor. And a person who's not broken can go through the death of their entire family in an automobile accident and bounce back. And that is the main indicator of brokenness. How well can I cope with life? Because life is always evolving and changing. And that is, the, that is a key determinant of how well I cope. We're all broken in some ways. Here's something I would love to kind of unpack as well, because as we talk about the dynamics of engaging relationally, um, you know, especially with men, is um, vulnerability and the things that inhibit or prohibit uh, vulnerability in men and our willingness or our, you know, our comfortability with it. What are your thoughts on, on that? I don't want to make it sound simple, but there's so many of these things are, are God didn't make men and women the same. Period. But we we fight against that and we won't allow men to be men and men won't allow women to be women because God did not intend us to be the same. And so part of the vulnerability is the fact that women will, can I say, vomit all over the place emotionally. And that can be overwhelming for a man. And so a man will want a woman to stop doing that. I can't take it. And a, and a man will give a woman only a little tiny bit and she wants more. And so she's going to pull and push and try to get more out of him. And if he gives her something she doesn't want, then she's got an attitude about it. But we have to start from the premise that God knew what he was doing. He made us the way he wanted women to be more emotional and he wanted men to be more cognitive. But it doesn't mean men aren't emotional and doesn't mean women can't be cognitive. But we resist it. And if we can just let each other be who God made us to be and don't make us apologize or defend it, relationships are so much easier. (laughs) You know what? I think that's a good note to kind of wrap up this segment because... (laughs) That's the golden ticket right there. is going to be about barriers to vulnerability. And so we can delve into that uh, a lot deeper um, when we get to that conversation. So any last words, Dr. Collins, as we close up this uh, first segment of episode of It's Real Life podcast uh, as it relates to our subject tonight? Um, the impact of depression on relationships. This has been very, very beneficial to me. And uh, I really do appreciate um, all of the uh, input and feedback. And um, also something that I I just realized, I was going through my uh, medical records. Sometimes I do that to see what they wrote in. (laughs) And um, in, in 2016, the doctor said I had depressive symptoms. 
because uh, my stomach was hurting, my head was hurting, I was having dizzy spells, like I was having like heart palpitations, like angina, you know, but he wrote in my records, and I just saw that, that I had depressive symptoms. And so, so like from 2016 to 2019, I'm quite sure they were there, you know what I'm saying, I was just sitting there like a polycaic, kind of waiting, I mean, something to explode, although he gave me other, other medications, Nothing was prescribed for, you know, depression, probably because I didn't admit it. As knowing me, I'm saying, well, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, but yeah, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling that way. But uh, I think if if you have friends, if they see something, if you have a husband, if you have children, if they see something, they need to say something. And I think that's what it is. If we have friends, even though they know our personality, they know us, they don't want to get involved, they don't want to make us feel badly, if they see something. Please say something, <laughs> you know? That's good. That's good. Dr. Leatherman, closing remarks? I, I think I would say that the, the, the pilots and the flight attendants summed it up best. Yeah. Don't help anyone around you until you put your face mask on. Yeah. And so often we are trying to help other people and we're not getting enough oxygen. Right. And so they either die while we're trying to help them or we die because we didn't take care of ourselves and then they can't help but die. So I think whatever, whatever self-care looks like, make sure you're not always at the bottom of your list, males or females. We both have to take care of ourselves so that we have reserves and resources to help other people who we also love. Sometimes that means raising your hand and saying help. Yeah. That's the first step. Wow. Wow. Well, I'll jump in here and kind of give my parting thoughts because I love what you just said. And I think in a previous conversation, we were talking about um, lifeguard training and part of what they do you know, to train lifeguards and how, you know, what they say is that if a person is flaying, you know, in the, in the water, you have to let them kind of wear themselves out before you can save them. Because yeah. if you don't, they'll take both of you guys down. And so being able to kind of have that perspective and then just also thinking about the greatest commandment, the second part saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you have to, in order to love them well, you got to love you well. Um, and I think that's powerful. And so I, I really appreciate that, that. I think that's a critical piece of how we engage and understand the impact of depression on relationships and how we need to engage. You got to be present. And we got we got to be whole and present. Yes. Damn. That's good. It makes me think about another topic, though. You know, how many of us are really whole? You know, how many of us really know ourselves i mean that's a, so that means we have much more to talk about here at it's a real life podcast i can't yeah. wait for those other conversations yes thank you ladies for joining us thank you ladies it's been great yes so we'll sign off from here it's real hope real love and real, real life, life. <laughs> <laughs> y'all have a great evening Thank you. you.